Summary of New to Big by David Kidder and Christina Wallace. Written by Nicholas Stewart and Quickread. Narrated by Alex Smith. Introduction. Quote, in the same way an MBA program teaches a form of management for administering and growing existing businesses, entrepreneurship and venture capital are, together, a form of management for discovering and building new businesses. Enterprises need both. Close quote. Authors Kidder and Wallace propose radical steps for established businesses to follow a strategy of ongoing growth and evolution. Taking cues from the culture of startups and examples from companies like Amazon, Microsoft, and Kroger, New to Big is a guide map to fostering organic growth. Chapter 1. A Shift Towards Short-Sighted Greed Since the mid-20th century, American business culture has seen a shift in focus and zeitgeist on what it means to be successful. The idealized image of American capitalism was that companies provided consumers with a needed product or service, and through quality and responsible business practices, they would achieve customer loyalty. However, in the mid to late 20th century, a shift occurred. Basically, by the 1970s, more and more businesses began using stock options as part of executive pay packages. Whereas before CEOs and the like were primarily paid by a salary, now the majority of their income comes from stocks. The idea was that this would make executives more invested in the well-being of the company and in the interests of their shareholders, since they themselves would be shareholders as well. The problem is that it also incentivized them to focus on profits above all else, especially short-term profits. And this focus on profits became more important than focusing on the needs of their customers and on the good of society as a whole. This led to a change in worldview. The idea was no longer that the point of companies were to fulfill the needs of society, but that the point of companies was to generate profits and the needs of society were irrelevant. Worse even, the very notion of worrying about needs of society became a joke, something only hippie moralizers cared about. In the 1950s and 60s, companies like IBM had large R&D departments. Many modern technological advances came from these departments and have been hugely important to society. But these departments were expensive. And while in the long term they often proved extremely profitable, they didn't provide any short-term profit. Thus, they were eliminated, as were pensions and other employee benefits. Companies began lobbying to eliminate environmental protections and workers' rights laws. Everything in the name of immediate shareholder profit, regardless of the damage it did to society or even to the company in the long term. Chapter 2. Startups are more flexible and willing to adapt. As large businesses became hyper-focused on immediate shareholder profits, they became less and less willing to take risks and move in new directions. The problem is that markets don't care about shareholder returns. They'll shift and change based on technology, world affairs, and consumer needs, whether you want them to or not. And the rate of technological advancement in the 21st century means these changes happen more frequently and more drastically. Which means businesses that are inflexible, that aren't willing to take risks to stay relevant, eventually die out. So a major point the authors try to get across is that if you want to understand how to survive and thrive in the modern business world, you shouldn't be looking at old established companies, but rather at the culture and strategies of startups. Startups, by their nature, don't have the war chests to weather temporary setbacks. They have to adapt immediately if they want to survive. 
This is why startups so often pivot. A pivot is when a company shifts its business model to adapt to new trends or to abandon a clearly failing model. For instance, did you know Yelp was originally intended to be an automated service you use to ask friends for business recommendations? The company pivoted when they noticed users began writing business reviews just for fun, rather than resist people using the site in ways the founders didn't intend. They embraced it. Now it's impossible to find a restaurant or store without a Yelp rating. YouTube was originally a dating website. The idea was that users would upload videos describing what they were looking for in a partner, and other users could respond. Only by massively pivoting did they become the dominant video streaming platform, possessing a virtual monopoly of that market. Twitter was originally called Odeo, and was a platform you used to subscribe to podcasts. But the rise of iTunes led them to pivot, rebrand as Twitter, and become the face of microblogging to such a degree that most people probably couldn't even name a competing service. The point here is that by being willing to make radical changes, startups foster innovation and long-term success more effectively than established mega-companies. Ironically, sustainability requires risk-taking. It turns out that being set in your ways and being risk-averse is actually the riskier behavior. Which is why the biggest companies in the world today are relatively young. Google, Facebook, Apple, etc. Companies that encourage the forward-thinking strategies of startups because it's not been very long since they were startups themselves. Chapter 3. Microsoft Microsoft is an example of a mega company that almost failed because they followed the old conservative strategies, then turned things back around by embracing the new startup ways of thinking. By the 1990s, Microsoft was so huge that they actually faced government intervention for having anti-competitive practices, in violation of anti-monopoly regulations. But after founder Bill Gates left his position as CEO at the start of the 21st century, the company began behaving as many established companies do, which is to say they adopted an attitude of risk aversion, prioritizing not rocking the boat in order to keep shareholders happy. The problem was this was at a time of unprecedented technological innovation. The internet was no longer the sole purview of tech geeks, universities, and academics. It was now in the everyday home, and companies like Google were growing rapidly by embracing and driving the tech revolution. Meanwhile, Microsoft was relying on their established business model. They sold software. That was what made them big, and that was the way things would stay. But people weren't buying their boring and unoriginal products anymore. In fact, the entire model of software as a product was dying. Microsoft floundered. That is, until 2014, when a new CEO was brought in. A serial entrepreneur named Satya Nadala came in and completely changed the direction of the company. Microsoft would no longer use profit and revenue as its yardstick for measuring success. These were outdated ways of understanding business, Nadella said. Profits only told you what was happening in the short term, in the immediate moment. If you wanted a long-term understanding of what your company needed to do, you needed to focus on customer satisfaction. And if you wanted the ability to stay flexible and nimble, so as to shift directions as customers' interests shifted, you needed to foster an environment that encouraged innovation and risk-taking. And so the company did, in fact, shift and adapt. They began focusing away from software as a product and toward software as a service, 
They moved away from a business model so closely associated with them that it was literally known as the Microsoft model. As a result, they've experienced rapid and consistent growth on a scale they'd not seen in years. Chapter 4. Total Addressable Market The authors define two major ways of looking at business in the form of contrasting models. The Total Addressable Market Model, TAM, and the Total Addressable Problem Model, TAP. The Total Addressable Market Model is the old-school way of thinking. It has existed for decades, and it tends to be the model older, established businesses are naturally inclined towards. The Total Addressable Market Model looks at the market a business works in and focuses its efforts on controlling as large a percentage of that market as possible. It isn't concerned with altering the business model of the company, because the goal is to control the market the company is already in. If you're a paper printing company, you're focused on controlling the paper market. You're not concerned with other products and services unrelated to paper, because you're a paper company, right? If you're dealing with competitors, you focus on beating them, on altering your existing products and services, not on taking the company in an entirely new direction. You measure success by quarterly profits and by market share. The problem is this sort of company has no way to deal with the market changing. What happens when less people use paper because everything is online? What good is controlling the paper market if the paper market becomes obsolete? It's an issue with understanding the purpose of a company. Sure, you founded the company to sell paper, so what? Was your goal simply to supply people with paper or to be a successful business? Because if it's the former, congratulations, your company has served its purpose and can now be disbanded, right? If its role as a paper provider is no longer needed, then why would you want your company to continue existing? Well, because obviously that's not the purpose of the company. The purpose of the company is to serve consumer needs and to be financially successful. If consumer needs shift, then you need to shift with them. Chapter 5. Total Addressable Problem The second model the authors put forward is the Total Addressable Problem Model. The Total Addressable Problem Model doesn't focus on the market you currently occupy. It focuses on consumer needs. The word problem in this context refers to problems consumers have, that companies seek to solve. For instance, in the previous example, the problem was the need for paper. The goal of the total addressable problem model isn't to slightly alter your existing products and services to entice customers. It's to try and identify as well as predict new consumer needs. Take the smartphone. For the better part of two decades, the purpose of the cell phone was to be just that, a mobile telephone. What do you do with a telephone? You talk on it. That's it. There were small innovations by phone manufacturers, like texting, but it was still based on the fundamental understanding that the purpose of the cell phone was to talk to other phones, whether by voice or by text. Phone companies were utilizing the total addressable market model to base their thinking on. It took a non-phone company, Apple, to see what direction the future was heading. Using the total addressable problem model, Apple was able to see that there were multiple tools consumers were using to fulfill multiple needs. People wanted to be able to walk around listening to music, so they had MP3 players. People wanted to be able to use the internet even when not on a PC, so they had laptops. Noticing this, along with noticing the possibilities that 4G technology provided, Apple decided to combine the telephone, the MP3 player, and the laptop device into one device. 
the iPhone. Thus, by using a total addressable problem way of thinking, rather than a total addressable market way of thinking, Apple branched out into a new market and completely revolutionized it. Chapter 6. Innovation Inherently Involves Failures There are two kinds of mistakes, destructive mistakes and productive mistakes. Destructive mistakes are what most of us are referring to when we use the word. It's dropping the type of mistake that causes a project to fail. Productive mistakes are mistakes you make along the way to innovation. Thomas Edison famously described this process when, in response to the fact that it took him over 2,000 tries to successfully create the incandescent light bulb, he said, quote, I didn't fail 2,000 times. I found 2,000 ways how not to make a light bulb, close quote. Viagra wasn't originally an ED medication. Originally, it was being tested as a medication for blood pressure issues. It failed in that endeavor, but that failure also led to the discovery of what it is good at. Bubble wrap was originally invented as a wallpaper. Unsurprisingly, nobody wanted it for that purpose, but people did discover that it was really good for protecting fragile objects during shipping. These sorts of accidental innovations require admitting that you failed at your original goal, however, and modern corporate culture doesn't allow for that. Failure isn't seen as a learning opportunity. It's simply a bad mark on your performance review or bad news that will make shareholders uneasy. But innovation requires experimentation, and experimentation requires failure. The first ever word processor program, computer mouse, video chat program, hypertext, and dynamic file linking systems were invented by Xerox's R&D department in 1968, but they wouldn't successfully be implemented in consumer computers until the 1980s. That couldn't happen in many modern companies. If it doesn't have an immediate payoff, companies aren't interested. If you want to stay relevant and competitive, you need not only to tolerate productive failures, but encourage them. Chapter 7. Building a Tap Team So, you're ready to shift your company's focus to a total addressable problem model. How do you do it? First and foremost, you need a team of people who understand your goals. It might be difficult to put this sort of team together if your company has operated on a total addressable market model up until now. That's the way your employees have been taught to think, and shifting that thinking can be a slow and arduous process. Because of this, you need to look at employees, whether already in your company or outside recruits, who have never operated well with the TAM model. You're looking for free thinkers, the rebels, people who have the jobs they have because of their competence, but have never really moved up the corporate ladder because they don't know how to play the game well. Look for employees who've shown in the past that they are willing and able to shift and adapt rapidly, who respond to changes in the direction of projects without hesitation and without stress. Look for the people who are passionate about keeping up with market news and are naturally curious. And look for the people who have been advocating for change, for risky new ideas, and maybe weren't previously listened to. Chapter 8 the finances of new to big. So far, the ideas we've covered haven't really seemed to have had many downsides. But there is one major downside to becoming a company of ongoing innovation. It requires risking money. New ideas, new products, research and development, these all cost money. The good news is established businesses and mega corporations likely have the ability to secure funds. 
The bad news, however, is that the process for securing funding for new ideas can be slow and full of bureaucratic nonsense. So the authors suggest the creation of what they call a growth board, a C-suite team or committee whose purpose is specifically to review new ideas and allocate funds to develop them. The difference between this strategy and your company's normal budgeting process is that the growth board will fund multiple projects at once and fund them based on milestones rather than one lump sum budget. The growth board then tracks projects and allocates more funds as needed to the projects that show promise, while terminating projects not going anywhere. This model of funding serves two purposes. First, it's quicker than traditional budget processes and risks less overall money. And secondly, it mimics the environment startups operate in by giving the teams developing new ideas high level of autonomy, but also only funding the projects as they advance, you recreate the sort of urgency and innovation through adversity that startups experience. The point of funding multiple projects at once is also to spread out your risk. Most new businesses fail, and as such, most new business ideas will fail. By allocating funds to multiple projects at once and only funding them based on milestones, you are, in a sense, diversifying your investments. Plus, the more projects you fund, the more chances there are that you'll find a winning idea. Final Summary Long-term growth requires a mixture of fiduciary responsibility and entrepreneurial risk-taking. Companies that are too afraid of losing what they have to take new risks will ultimately die out. Companies more concerned with shareholder returns than consumer needs will be made obsolete. Ongoing sustainable growth requires behaving like a startup, which is to say trying to anticipate customer needs and being willing to take drastic shifts and pivots without concern for old-fashioned ideas like market share or short-sighted measurements like quarterly profits. This audiobook summary was brought to you by QuickRead. We hope you enjoyed this audiobook summary. If you want more audiobook summaries like this, download our app in the App Store or Google Play and get access to thousands of other free book and audiobook summaries. Listen to them while working out or commuting to work and get the key insights of books in minutes instead of hours. Go to quickread.com app and download our app for free today.